Hello, and welcome back to Dollars and Dragons. Today we have Alex Roberts with us. If you'd like to introduce yourself to the audience here. Hi, I'm Alex Roberts. I'm a game designer and a registered clinical counselor. Um, I made Starcrossed for the Queen, Precious Little Animal, a couple of other games you might have heard of. And I also do consulting, helping other people with their game designs. I teach a little bit. I teach game design and counseling skills, although I haven't done that together yet. Um, and, uh, yeah, I really love games that are interpersonally complex and psychologically complex and mechanically elegant. Um, that's kind of how I like to pitch my design. Um, yeah, and I'm, I'm very pleased to be here. I'm excited to chat with you. Wonderful. Um, not everybody says that. I, I'm just, that's a joke. (laughs) (laughs) I can't believe I'm here. I'm stuck here. (laughs) My manager set me up with this awful meeting. (laughs) All right. Can you tell us a little bit about being a counselor and what that is sort of like since it's your day job, quote unquote, right? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, absolutely. So I I mostly see individual clients um, working on all kinds of stuff, um, folks uh, managing anxiety and depression and also like big life changes, relational challenges, grief and loss. Yeah, yeah. I have all kinds of all kinds of different folks walk through the door and often what we're talking about in uh, in session one is is not what ends up being the bulk of our work. Ah, I'm sorry, I find my work really fascinating and delightful. Yeah, so I see a couple clients here in my office, but uh, I also do uh, group stuff. So I was just teaching a workshop last week, kind of a psychoed thing on anxiety and social anxiety management skills. So I really, really like working with small groups. And also I'm teaching at a university here, an undergraduate class in counseling skills. So that's sort of like my life as a counselor. And then game stuff fits in on and around that. Super cool. Did you go straight from high school to college to that? Or did you have some sort of career before that that you transitioned from? Oh, it's interesting. Um, So I went straight from high school to a degree in philosophy, um, which then like halfway through, I switched to a degree in theology. So I'm like a religious studies dork. Um, Still, that's still like my sort of pet nerdy interest, actually. Um, but, uh, but I took a minor in psychology as well. And like the kind of theology that I learned is like pastoral theology. Um, so generally, uh, generally a course meant for people who want to become like pastors and ministers and stuff, which I was very attracted to part of, but then I was like, also, I don't really believe in like a religion and I'm not part of a religious community. I am now ironically, but at the time I was like, huh, there's some part of this I think is really cool. Uh, It turned out it was the talking to people about their problems part. So I kind of planned to in like just go right away to a counseling master's after that. And then, I don't know, life happened and I sort of took a break from school. Um, and then I was out of school for like almost 10 years um, doing other stuff. I worked in marketing for a while. I've been like a receptionist. I've done like, yeah, I don't know, office type stuff. And then in the middle of that, I started uh, playing role-playing games and then I started making role-playing games and I started hanging out with a bunch of other people at conventions who were making role-playing games. And so that that became my career. And I was a full-time games person for quite a few years. But the counseling thing was always kind of still in the back of my head as something I kind of wanted to do. So through various things, just realizing what I really loved and what really spoke to me, I, I decided to go back to school and I, I just finished my master's in counseling last year, actually. That's that's kind of the career story. And also at that time, I considered myself retired from game design. And I was like, that's the end of that chapter, but uh, I can't seem to get out. I keep either... Um, uh, this summer I got invited to a little convention to like go and like teach and talk and stuff. And I was like, oh yeah, this is really fun. And also I keep getting game design ideas and wanting to make games. So I can't, uh, I can't seem to extract myself from the games world. Um, it has not, it has not worked yet. I'm still kind of having fun. Yeah. Just when you think that you're out, they pull you back in. (laughs) They pull me back in. Yeah. Yeah. One last job. (laughs) (laughs) One last sexy game. Uh, For you, and uh, that's funny that you mentioned, and totally okay if you don't want to talk about this. What's the correlation between religious trauma and like like kink and like sex and stuff like that? Whoa! Isn't that... Whoa! What? Okay. I have a very long answer to this. 
Okay, let's do it, because you said, like, I was studying religion, and then you got into, like, counseling and, like, these romance games, so I'm like, what is yeah. the connection there? Oh, wow. This is, like, such a beautiful thread no one has ever, like, pulled on before. Um, yes. Okay, so I, uh, I I studied all kinds of different tradition, but tr- traditions, but I was very, very interested in Catholicism, actually. I think, like, from a scholarly perspective, like, that system of like of belief and of like ritual and stuff is like bar none the most fascinating that's my personal thing i'm not a catholic i was raised like uh without any particular religion so there's that and then also like there's mental health well i don't know quote unquote mental health stuff i have issues with that term whatever helping people live like meaningful and full lives and heal from uh inter heal from all kinds of things live value driven lives um and then there's also, yes, my other life, which is I make games and they're often just kind of kinky. Yeah. Even when I try to make them not, they just kind of, they just kind of come out that way. I don't know. I think. Um, You're speaking power, the truth. Yeah. That's the thing. I just, I can't hide it. Um, I think power dynamics that are driven and sustained uh, by libidinal energy are really powerful and fascinating. So you know, Michel Foucault in his History of Sexuality talks about structures of power are in many ways sustained by pleasure. And that, um, because he really talks about, um, like, uh, the medicalization of sexuality, in particular, like, um, pathologization of, like, of, like, quote-unquote, alternative or unusual sexualities um, in the kind of 19th and 20th centuries, and really talks about how, like, he, he makes this amazing, volume one, History of Sexuality, totally read it. He makes this amazing connection between, like, the confessional booth and, like, the clinic, like, the psychoanalyst office or, like, the medical clinic, where you are, where you're just, like, sort of privately probed, you know, with, like, the, with the, with the promise of confidentiality, but you have to tell me, you have to tell me everything that's wrong with you, and all your weird stuff and it's just for me but you have to say it i'm forcing you I'm and um, right now. <laughs> <laughs> so i think like because i think religious trauma is like a specific thing that happens to certain people but living in a world that is driven by hierarchical power structures and that is like just a massive sort of rube goldberg device of hierarchical power structures um, that in some people's lives includes churches um, and certainly in society, right? Like like we can talk about hegemonic Christianity and like broad power structures that do have um, – that have an influence on, on everyone's life, whether or not it's like part of their individual spirituality. So, so this is like a complicated way of answering this question. But I do think that like the eroticization of really unequal and like messed up power structures can only exist – in a society where those like really messed up and intense power structures exist. So if we did not have those kind of creating our whole societal deal, there would be no need to reckon with them by eroticizing them and exploring them within the sort of like uh, liminal space of kinky sex. Um, and I think that uh, there is a reason why uh, I feel like even the most, even the most sort of mainstream, like uh, not kink aware person um, has some sense that there are like role plays that people do, right? That there's the, I'm the teacher and you're the student. That there's the, uh, you know, I'm the priest and you're the nun or maybe the confessor or something. Or that there's the people eroticize like military structures and uh, uh, and pet play, pony play. We're talking about the relationship between a, between an owner and a pet. That is a weird relationship. That is a very, very specific kind. That is a specific way for two species, for two beings to interact. That is like really bizarre and like hyper normal in our society. And that was, but like doesn't exist in other, in many other societies that have existed like over the course of human history and has also like been rare or like strictly an upper middle class thing in certain like, um, societies so all of these relationships like there is no need there is no compulsion to eroticize them unless they're just kind of part of your life and you have to reckon with them does that answer your question it does but i have more questions so um, all right this is this is personal but i am like always about like sharing my personal thing and you we don't have to talk about this if you don't want to um we can cut this from the podcast. So I found out that I was into impact, right? Because my girlfriend, like after a massage, would like slap me on the back. And I was like, and I just like was laying there and I was like, hmm, exact, that's exactly the noise. That is exactly it, Alex. That's what happened. I said, hmm, 
Yeah. And because I was like in a different space, I was like in a space where I, you know, felt loved and trusted and validated and like was myself. Can you do that again? Because I was just like testing. I was like, can you just like slap you again? And I was like, yeah, just just slap me again. She slapped me again. Felt great. There was some there was something about it with like the anticipation, the tension of it, and then the release of uh, that tension that felt really good. Please don't send me your DMs about kink, everyone that's listening. <laughs> this is a theoretical discussion. This is a philosophical discussion. Have some but... restraint. <laughs> uh, we just ordered more restraints. But so um, at that point, I was like, I just had like this, oh my God, I'm one of those people now. And I was like, just as kind of like a joke and I was laughing about it. And then I asked uh, my girlfriend, I was like, I'm going to ask you a question and this is going to change our lives forever. Were you spanked as a child? And she was like, yes. And I was like, so was I. And we're both into it. And I'm just like, what is the connection here? Is there like, is that pseudoscience? Is there some sort of connection there? Do you think? Is it, has that been documented? So that is like a very specifically interesting question because I know that there are people who are into spanking who are like everyone I know. This is this is like obviously an older generation. This is you know um, uh, from many years ago. They were like everyone I know got spanked when they were a kid, and I never did. And so I think the reason they were saying that I'm into spanking is because like it's like this thing that I never got to experience, and so because it wasn't a part of my life, I eroticized it. We can try to do the forensic work of where our specific kind of stuff comes from, and. Uh, and, you know, because of the ways of understanding people that we have available to us right now, since this, you know, since, since psychoanalysis, right? People don't understand that, like, prior to the, like, birth of psychoanalysis, people were really like, oh, stuff that happened in your childhood couldn't be important to you. It happened a long time ago. And some people still feel that way. But, uh, but I would say, like, one of the most important remnants of psychoanalysis, even for people, for people who think that they don't like or, like, have no connection to or no knowledge of, like, field, is that we just by default now believe that things that happened in our childhood are very important. And that has been borne out and I won't say proven, but that's supported by lots of other ways of understanding human beings since then. But, um, but yeah, it's natural to then, it's natural to look at your childhood and be like, where is this coming from? Or like, what am I doing here? But I don't know. I had someone say to me once that the least interesting part of what we do, and she was talking about kink, um, is is where it comes from. I think that's only partially true because I think there are lots of other interesting things about it. But yeah, of course, when we're into stuff, right? And the whole nature of something becoming a kink, right? If it becomes part of sexual desire is that it's under la like layers and layers and layers of meaning and layers of like so of of repression and layers of allowing and not allowing to think about and whatever. Like when something can only kind of be explored or like figured out or played with in sex, I think it's like, it's like so concealed by that point. Like that that's why it ends up there. You know, that's why we can't just like journal about it, talk about it. And yeah, uh, yeah. so I think it's like a really, really good question. Actually, <laughs> I don't want to call anybody out, but um, I was talking to a friend of mine and, uh, you know, they were saying like that their partner uh you know, was like, they had recently decided to be non-monogamous and it was going really well. They were really, really happy. And they were saying, you know, it's great. Like they were like, you know, my partner, I think really wants to explore kink stuff. And, and you know, they were like, that, that doesn't do it for me at all. So I'm really happy that they're like having these other relationships where they can like really play with that and explore that. And I feel like there's no pressure on me now. I was like, yeah, that's amazing. And like, you know, totally fair if you're, if you're just not as kinky and you don't really like playing with power. And they said, well, yeah, you know, she, she grew up Catholic and I didn't so <laughs> yeah yeah so like it's really hard to draw a one-to-one -one, but mm -hmm. there are all they're just these things right they're just these things that are like uh this kind of speaks to some lack or this speaks to some weird thing that you have to process this way and like it's such an inexact science of trying to figure out why or like what's what's being processed here or what's being sublimated. Um, and it's probably different, you know, like the same kink probably exists for different reasons in different people. Endless, endless interest in speculation and wondering and questioning. Yeah. And just to overshare further. Uh, yeah. So I like when my girl, my when my girlfriend told me that I was beautiful and I believed her 
the first person I ever believed first time in my life. Like I was just sobbing uncontrollably for like 20 or 30 minutes. And then the first time that I had a femme orgasm, like mm -hmm. same thing, like it was like laughing hysterically, crying hysterically. And then like the aftermath of it was like lasted a really long time. Mm -hmm. And this past time, I'm only on two. So I've only had two. And I'm like, I'm like one and done. And like, I'm just like spinning. I can't do anything for like the rest of the day. I have to recover. But, but this past time I was like, there was, there was something about it that was so very validating about what was happening to my body um, that I just had a, an immense like release of emotional, like, mm. it was just like a, I turned on the spigot and I was yes. like sobbing in the middle of it. And I just, uh, I completely missed the fact that I had just orgasm, which my girlfriend explained to me later. But um, <laughs> like based on like my behavior and then also what happened with my body and all that stuff. But um, yeah, and I totally like missed it because it was like I had such an emotional trauma response mm -hmm. to that occurring for me. That's wild. It's interesting. And I think that is what interests me more is what is what sex does for people right now with the situation that they're in right now and naturally naturally kinky sex is just more interesting because uh i don't know i, I don't know the standard sort of like following the appropriate um uh, social script of what sex is supposed to be is just not that interesting to think about but presumably that's doing something for people right like uh you know i i, I don't know i'm sure we've had conversations before about like how like people who are straight and cis also really want to be gender affirmed it just happens all the time so they don't realize it so i imagine yeah. i don't know maybe there's something like really beautiful and gender affirming about like their extremely normal vanilla heterosexual sex um and like you know that feels good in a way that we just like don't really have to think about that much because it's like pertains to all these hegemonic things that are just like you know socially supposed to happen and the script is just running the way it's supposed to but as soon as you're doing stuff that is outside the norm or outside what is like um expected of you that you have had to negotiate on your own um then it it's like becomes more obvious that it's doing something for you on a psychological level um and like the the experience of validation that you talk about I don't know. I have my own theories around this stuff. And, and like, this comes up in the work that I do with clients. You know, I'm very, very much like a kink aware, kink affirming practitioner. And I really, I specialize in seeing clients who are either queer or find themselves elsewhere on the LGBTQ2 plus IA uh, spectrum, or who are in non-traditional relationships or, or questioning anything around there. So I, I think like the, I don't know, it's quite kind of a working model that I use when talking to people about this stuff is like, what is the truth that is being asserted or affirmed when you do this thing? I'm trying to think of like how different people talk about the same thing, right? So like one person is like, you know, when I feel tied up, when I'm tied up, they're like, I feel helpless and I feel like there's nothing I can do and I have no power and it's really scary and that fear is exhilarating. So I'm scared, but then good things happen is basically yeah. what it is, right? Like, so my fear yeah. of powerlessness is then kind of like assuaged because I experience the powerlessness and actually it's fine. It's good. I'm loved. I'm held. I get to feel pleasure. Everything's good. So mm -hmm. it's like, it's like um, experiencing this fear, like sort of diving into this fear of powerlessness over and over and over again. And every time it works out great. So of course your whole nervous system, right? Your whole body is like, the scary thing happened, but actually it rules. So I get to both like experience all the sort of like cortisol and um and all the like um uh you know I, I don't know epinephrine i'm trying to think of the like stressed out drugs that kind right. of feel exciting but then also you get all the like good um uh brain chemicals of like being loved and held and like touched so it's like that combination but you know i've talked to other people they get tied up they're in like a rope harness or whatever and they're like I feel so safe. I feel so held. I feel like I'm contained and like I'm okay and I feel and I feel attractive because of the way that the, like the harness is on me. And so then it's not like this it's not like this frightening thrill at all. It's like this mm, there's just something sort of like cozy and comfy about it that makes me feel safe and makes me feel at ease. What is what is being done, right? Like what is the truth that that is being sort of like proven or asserted in that moment? Is it that I am desirable, right? Like if I've been trussed up like this by my partner and I am in this like elaborate rope harness that and I'm sort of on display for them I must be attractive right like it is it is proven it is being it, it, it you, you know like it, the, 
it's it's happening. If this is happening, I must be very, very attractive. And then the other person, you know, is like, I'm helpless. Like me being powerless is not the end of the world, right? Like that's the truth that's being asserted. Like me not being in control is not bad or dangerous and I'm not bad. And that, like whatever the fear behind being powerless is, that's not true. It's actually okay to be out of control or to to give control to another person, right? So that's always the question for me is like, what's the what's the truth what is the thing that you are being assured of um, or the, th- the truth that is being proven when when you're engaging in whatever whatever specific thing that you find hot? Yeah, 100%. Uh, for me, it is all about gender euphoria, at least like now at this point, because my, my body has undergone so many changes in the past, like 14, mm-hmm. 15 months that I've been on HRT. And um, all of these changes like sort of happened gradually until suddenly, you know, now, now I orgasm and it just happened I just, I don't want to say overnight, but like my, uh, everything stopped working more or less for like a three month period. And then I was like, okay, well, I'm really just content being a trans person who just doesn't. And then, you know, I massage and everything like that. And I love being held and uh, cuddled and stuff. And I love being touched. Uh, But then that happened. And I was just like, oh, I don't know how I'm gonna, how I don't, I can't recover top energy in these working conditions. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) (laughs) this is difficult. Um, But I think, you know, for at least my partner, they experience some level of trauma from their past and their intimate Mm -hmm. relationships. And Mm -hmm. um, I had this conversation with them more than once about some of the things that we have done that were actually a part of their traumatic history. um, Mm -hmm. And because of how we have approached it um or how safe they feel with me it has been uh a kind of a healing exercise for them um because it's this thing that was traumatic to think about Mm -hmm. or kind of experience and now it's nothing but good things with me and i don't i didn't initially set out to be like asking all of these consent questions like in the middle of having sex it's just something that i ended up doing because Mm -hmm. we were new partners and i just wanted to make sure that she was okay with Mm -hmm. everything that we were trying out um and she said that was actually one of her favorite things about our experience together was because she had in the past um never been given the opportunity to both voice what she would like and what she doesn't like yeah absolutely I can say this as as a therapist. Something that bugs the heck out of me is when people say like, I think everyone should go to therapy or they're like, oh, so-and-so, they really just need to go to therapy. Or uh, I see this on like dating apps sometimes where people are like, I've been to therapy and you need to have one over have done so as well because um like hey if you're thinking about it give it a shot but the fact is there are so many different kinds of healing there are so many different healing modalities that human beings have had access to and have developed and have you know incidentally done or whatever they come in so many different forms in different ways so like maybe a particular therapy mode is going to work for you but i think people are really out there through all kinds of ways intentionally or unintentionally and through music and through dance and through movement and through like you know spiritual practices like so much stuff and i think kink is one of them because i can tell you that uh you know my my training in in trauma therapy and trauma processing is that here quick rundown of like the triphasic model of uh, of trauma um trauma therapy is you first set up like safety and stabilization right you build a good therapeutic relationship put the resource the person in such a way where if they get triggered they know how to respond they understand you know whatever and then second phase is like actual processing processing is like kind of a vague term it can happen in a lot of different ways but basically it means revisiting and then completing or resolving the traumatic uh conditions or the traumatic incident um and then the third phase is like reconnection right so then that's your when you're transitioning out of the therapeutic relationship you're helping people connect to who they are now that you know after healing and what relationships they're going to be connected in what can they do now that they couldn't when they were um being really activated, et cetera, et cetera. That's a very, very quick and dirty explanation. I apologize to any therapist who may be listening and going, wait, 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 what about these million other things? But my point is that enactment therapy, to a certain extent, psychodrama, I think certain forms of narrative therapy, all of those things take trauma. And the point is revisiting the tra- the, the trauma 
talking or telling or enacting or playing out the story again, but this time it's okay, right? This time it's over. This time there was someone to listen to you. This time there was someone to comfort you. This time uh, it was acknowledged. This time you were held. This time the the bad thing didn't, you know, the, the feared outcome or the negative social outcome didn't happen. And so, again, you have to do that under very controlled conditions. And as a mental, uh, you know, as like a mental health professional or whatever, as a registered clinical counselor, I have to say, like, there have to be so many things in place with a client before I can do that phase two stuff, whatever it looks like. And I need to do it in ways that I've been trained in and that I can say with confidence either will probably work or will. And if they don't, then I then you're still safe and all this other stuff needs to be in place. I think people are doing that second part, kinky sex, all the time. They are revisiting the stuff that was painful, the stuff that was scary, the stuff that was, yeah, traumatic. And then it's ending with, I feel good and my partner holds me and I get aftercare and I'm celebrated and held and cherished and like, and loved. I think people are just doing that. They just have this, they just have this compulsion to do that. I think people probably do this through their art too. You know, sometimes you like read something that someone wrote and you're like, okay, you're kind of working through some stuff here. Um, I think people do that in kink, right? It's like whether, whether very plainly or in kind of obfuscated abstract ways, we're setting up these scenes that are very much like places in which we've been hurt and then replaying it, but with a twist ending where actually we get to feel great and we're connected to another person and they feel great too. And uh, and we get to feel close and held and loved and everything's okay. Yeah. Um, I, you may, you're making me reflect a lot. Um, I have therapy later today, so I'm not trying to use my, you as my therapist, but <laughs> I'm um, going to get you on the runway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm getting there. So um, yeah, I was just thinking, you know, when I started dating my partner, uh, my current partner, I was just looking for like casual dating because I needed like some form of affection. I mm -hmm. basically, when I came out, like my ex is straight. So like we've been married for 15 years, but like straight. So what am I going to do about that? And uh, I have boobs now, so they're not into that. So I went like, we went like maybe like nine months or more um, without any sort of intimacy or me not having any affirmation as I was like, transitioning mm -hmm. and as soon as i got out there and i like went on a date with someone and i was like vaguely with not vaguely but like i was i'd gone on an initial date and then the second date um we ended up hooking up and i was just of the mind like okay i'm i'm showing up to have sex because like i need the affirmation um and so we did and i like overperformed because that's generally what i do because i the top's burden <laughs> yeah yeah i was like you know it's like and she needs to be studied for science i don't understand how she can like go that many times but there's mm -hmm. some there's something very interesting about her chemistry but um afterwards like when i was done the fact that i was such an affirming environment and that i was still sexy and i was still someone that could do something like that i completely broke down and i just like second date we just had sex i sobbed uncontrollably for like uh it was a while it was very awkward but i was just like that's this queer is... culture baby we're crying <laughs> on dates i'm sorry <laughs> yeah and it was yeah yeah it was it was definitely a situation of like i needed to feel mm -hmm. affirmed for that long and it was all pent up around that yeah. experience with that person and then it just happened i guess so Wow, you, you just made me think of that because I, I know, I suppose I, I have made jokes about that with her all the time. Like every time she brings up, you know, I'm sorry for being a bit much, and I was just like, I was like, need I remind you? <laughs> <laughs> I, I sobbed viciously into your pillow, like after, like we had literally just had sex, and it was awkward. So you know, you get permission to be as much as you want. <laughs> I think, like. People have fears that are that are, can be articulated that simply, like oh, I'm I'm too much, I'm too annoying, I'm too clingy, I'm too needy, um, I'm too loud, I'm too angry. Right? We get these messages from other people, and I think that's also one of the things that can happen in sex, and probably in particular kinky sex, is you get to like be those things and like indulge that role and the and and be loved and have that appreciated, right? Like I have definitely, and I'll decide later whether or not I want you to take this out, but <laughs> I think like the thing that I have heard in like in important attachment relationships is like, is like you're too loud and uh, you can't be angry and you need to like, you need to, to 
whatever, I don't know, not be assertive, right? Not be in charge, not say what you want. And so then for me as a top, um, actually, I get to be very stern and I get to say exactly what I want. And I get to say exactly what's going to happen and what's going to happen if that doesn't happen. Um, and, and even like, you know, express frustration or express anger. And then when a bottom gets to receive all of that and they're like, yes, yes, I love this assertiveness. I love this. I love that you're taking out your frustration on me. I love that you're, um, you know, dictating what's going to happen next and you're saying what's going to happen and you're um, uh, in charge and all of those things. Right. Then when you get to experience not just being that, but being that and then it's like so appreciated. It's appreciated people. It's like, it's not just that I'll allow it. It's not just that I like it. I'm horny about it. Right. And when, so, when, when someone is able to respond to the parts of you that you have been told are bad or shameful or wrong, I'm horny about those parts. Like there's nothing else like it. It's a beautiful yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah. I have to say the, I was not expecting to receive top tone from Alec Roberts today, but we, that was, <laughs> that was amazing. Uh, Wow. Okay. Are we going to, is this going to be about games at some, cause I feel like we're kind of going there. I don't know how much, I mean, I don't have clients till this afternoon, you know, I, yeah. can, I can talk about whatever for whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's about games. Um, <laughs> you used to have a podcast on the one shot podcast network uh, called mm-hmm. backstory uh, which focused on games. Let's talk about that. What was that like for you? How long did you do it for? What did you learn from doing that podcast? Ooh, excellent question. So that is also a podcast where I often ended up talking to people about uh, their relationships and sexualities and power dynamics that they found compelling um, uh, for whatever reason. Uh, so um, Backstory uh, kind of started because I... Um, I mean, I was invited to pitch a show on the One Shot Network, which is very exciting for me as like someone who was kind of just getting into games. And uh, what I noticed is that I there were lots of there were lots of gaming podcasts around, and sometimes they would do interviews or there were interview shows, but they were often very focused around like what are you working on right now and what do you want to pitch. And yes, I would always give you know my my guests an opportunity to do that, but I really really wanted to get to know the person, and I really wanted to talk about the people who were making role playing games and what got them started, what are they working on, what do they do when they're not doing games, how does that feed into their games work, like etc. And um, that's like the whole like backstory, right? Because it's like about the person and where they're from. And I really, really enjoyed it because there was basically, I was going to a lot of conventions at the time. There was a period of a couple of years ending in about 2019 uh, when I was like going to conventions all the time, like sometimes once a month. It was just, yeah. It was an addiction. It was, I mean, we could get into that. It was, it was probably objectively too much. And, uh, but But the thing is, though, I was having conversations with people who made these games that I that I loved or that I found fascinating or who were game studies scholars or who were convention organizers or whatever, having these amazing conversations, you know, like at 1 a.m. sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just felt like not everybody goes to cons, every, but everyone should get some piece of these conversations because there is something that comes out in a dialogue between two people that doesn't come out in a blog post or directly in someone's game design or in a statement from, you know, whatever. There's just, there's something unique that people can express and figure out in a conversation um, that they can't do any other way. Surprise, surprise. I do one-on-one talk therapy now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but there there is something special and unique about that. So I did it for a while and like, I look back on it now and there's some, I sometimes I'm like, I wish I could just take the whole thing off the internet. And there's like some episodes that I'm like, oh God, please no one listen to this one or that one or whatever. And uh, yeah. But at the same time, it was it was an interesting way of like kind of capturing things that people were talking about and people's processes and like a very sort of particular, I guess, time in RPGs because I um, I decided to end it when I went back to grad school. I was like, I'm just not going to have time. And I kind of felt like I'd done what I wanted to do with the project anyway. It's kind of a weird little time capsule and I can just kind of let it be there and be that. Uh but um, but obviously plenty of other people like you have taken up the mantle of like doing interview shows and talking to people about um, 
about their personal sort of perspective and experience. Um, so backstory doesn't need to exist anymore, but it was it was a lot of fun while I was doing it. Yeah, I have listened to some of backstory and I recommend it to everyone, except for the ones that Alex doesn't want you to listen to. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, the, uh, the looking back at and cringing at our past selves, of course, is... Mm-hmm. You know, I think, yeah, I even like I'm cringing about the the shit that I put on the podcast like a month ago. I can't even imagine like, <laughs> like three, three yeah. months from now, like this whole conversation that we just had where I told everyone about my sex life. I do that with my players, which is yeah. like kind of why they show up in some cases. But um, yeah, but like, you know, obviously put it in the podcast. I'm just pretty open now that I'm a queer. Maybe, maybe at some point I'll just be, I'll have to stop that. Um You'll find you'll find the level of of it that feels right for you, right? It's like over, yeah. it's like undershare, overshare, and then eventually you find your your whatever. But I mean, whatever it makes good listening. Yeah, I I guess, and at the same time, like I know that my type of conversation turns away people a lot of the time, which is okay too, because not everybody has to listen to me, um, or want to talk to me, which is fine. Um, but yeah, I that's always something that I think about um, when I look back at like, of course my in the closet self, especially like Mm -hmm. super cringe, super, super in the closet, lots of problems there. Yeah. The backstory, like backlog that you have and like having a podcast journey that was like four, it was like four or five years that you ran it. Right. It was a couple of years. Yeah. I don't remember exactly. I feel like four years sounds right. Someone can correct me, but it was quite a, it was quite a chunk of time. I think it's longer than, uh, than, than lots of podcasts go. Yeah. And yeah, it it's really like kind of an era in my life, right? Like it was just when I was getting mm-hmm. started in role-playing games and then, and then, yeah, it ended in, in 2019 just before. So I, I actually, uh, I don't know if I want to get into all of this, but I actually planned to end it before I went back to school. Cause I was like just time management wise. Mm-hmm. Um, and then about six weeks before I started my graduate program, I was in a life-changing motor vehicle accident where I, um, b- broke both of my femurs and I've oh. never been the same. Uh, and, um, oh. it, yeah. So it also like, it also feels like it belongs to like that previous life in a certain way. Oh. Um, I mean, whatever I say, I'm never the same. Like my life in many ways has improved actually. <laughs> That's yeah. complicated. Um, but, uh. But yeah, so it it really feels like a different person made it in many ways. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Your life is so different. That's like, yeah, I wholly believe that because my life was different very much so two years ago. Yes. Before I had that epiphany watching a ContraPoints video. Mm -hmm. Of course. Which is, which is like a kind of the wild thing about like the impact that you can have like as an educator or as an entertainer. And for me, spending most of my life never really seeing or interacting with trans people, especially when I was in the military, because you don't see any trans people um, or hear about them, except like in bigoted jokes. Yeah. And then my first interactions. And then it was like the more I interacted with queers as soon as I got out, it was like, yeah, that makes sense. I can understand how you would feel that way or like why you would say that. Yeah, that sounds like, you know, I I totally get that. And then it was like. After a while, it's just like, wow, I really relate to these trans people. Like, there's so much that's relatable about it. That's weird. I'm this, you know, cishet guy that just happens to roleplay women, and I have since I was 12. Nothing <laughs> weird about that. Nothing notable to, to take note of. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, let's talk about Starcrossed. Jenga for couples that are about to have sex, basically, is <laughs> what the game is, right? Thank you. Uh, the greatest compliment of my career. Um, I've won awards. They're nice. But uh, one time I met someone for the first time. Uh, it was my friend's roommate. I went over to their place and uh, she was like, oh, I, I, I actually know your game. And I was like, oh, wow, that's it's it's wild. It's very unusual as an RPG creator to be to have that celebrity recognition moment. So that was nice. And then she said, uh, yeah, that's Starcrossed right up there on my shelf. And then she said, and that's the chair that me and my girlfriend broke right after we played it. And I was like, oh, my God, this busted chair, <laughs> that is the only award trophy that I need. That I am fulfilled. I am done. I could have retired oh in that moment. <laughs> wow. Yeah. You, your game caused them to fuck that chair to death. Yeah. It's a wow. dist- I've been a destructive force in many ways. <laughs> Watch out. <laughs> 
Um, for the listeners who don't know what Starcrossed is, uh, do you want to briefly explain oh, right. that? Yeah. <laughs> What's going on Oops. about this? Uh, people are like, oh my god, how heavy is this game? Um, anyway, so it is a two-player game about forbidden love. You play two characters who really, really want to, but for very for whatever reason you decide really, really shouldn't. And uh, then you put a Jenga tower in between the two of you. You play out a series of scenes. And every time that your character does something that escalates the intimacy between the two characters, you pull a brick from the tower, put it on top. If that tower falls, then your characters act on their feelings. And whether or not that was a good thing and the consequences thereof um, uh, depends on how you've been playing. Um, so I think that's a, I think that's a pretty good summary. That's kind of how, how it is played. That's my pitch. Um, nice. Yeah. <laughs> That sounds, you know, honestly, um, this is exactly the game that I need to play with my girlfriend uh, for a number of reasons. But mm-hmm. how did you, okay, so conceptually, um, how did you come to this? <laughs> so I played Epidiah Ravishal's Dread, uh, which was the first Jenga-based role-playing game. And I, I played that when I was like pretty new to role-playing games. I had the, I had the thing that many people have had where I was like playing D&D in high school and I was like, this is kind of fun, but I don't know. And then I was like, I guess I don't really like role-playing games. I thought I did, but D&D 4th Edition is not doing it for me. And then I played Fiasco and was like, oh. Um, so I was playing a lot of role-playing, uh, new to me role-playing games at that time. This must have been like 2010-ish, maybe. Um, And I was like just having my mind blown every single time. And so I played Dread, right? Which is like, whoa, it's got like the, it's a Jenga tower, but you're telling a story with it and there's no dice. So bonkers. And I, I, there are different play sets for that game, right? So there's different sets of like, you know, like a module. Um, And we were playing the space horror one. So it was like being an alien. Whoa. But I was like, you know what play set should exist? for this game is you have a crush on someone because it's a horror game. You play out these horror stories. I'm like, the most terrifying thing is having feelings for another person. Right, guys? So I thought of that and then kind of like toyed with that idea in the back of my head for a long time. And uh, it was like, okay, well, I guess you probably just want to play it two player. Most people, I mean, not that that doesn't happen, in, but, but gen- you know, an individual relationship might be easier. So it's two player, I guess. So then you probably don't have a GM. And so th- things, and uh, does the questionnaires work? Uh, you know, I think I want to control the way that people take turns a little bit more. If there's no GM, how do I split up that role of what the GM does? So anyway, things just kind of escalated to the point where it be- completely became its own game. And, uh, and it went from being like a hack of dread or like a dread playset to this thing that the pretty much the only thing it has in common with dread is that it uses jenga tower to generate tension but it's different tension yeah. <laughs> um yeah i sent an early draft to epidia actually i was like hey, is it cool if i like publish this it's like kind of inspired by your game and he was like oh my god yes um he's a sweetie <laughs> um but yeah so basically it, basically it came from dread initially and i was like i want to see what else we can do with this jenga tower and then the more time that i spent trying to figure out how to tell a story of forbidden love and how to generate an interesting high high bleed i don't know if, if any listeners don't know what bleed is it's like when you feel what your character is feeling um i wanted to crank that up to 11 as much as possible and at the same time give players a lot of control over how much how much fun discomfort they wanted to feel and where the story went and how explicit it was and everything um so that's how i ended up with the game that exists now um really me being very (laughs) very analytical of like romantic interactions largely between myself and others and being like what's going on here how does intimacy get escalated between people and like how what's interesting about like there's a lead and follow mechanic in Starcrossed. I was doing a lot of partnered dancing and like swing dancing back then. And um, and I was like, what makes that interesting? Why is it interesting to have one person who's like offering and one person who's accepting and then changing something and then passing it back? Like, how do I play with all of that? So it inspired by Dread and then really the product of me being obsessive, <laughs> obsessively observant uh, around like um, closeness and intimacy and romance and attraction between people. That's beautiful. Um, how for for you has you said that you're a full time game designer, right? Yeah. And I can imagine, though you don't have to share your finances, I imagine it didn't pay well because no. game design generally doesn't. Um, but yeah, so for you and being a game designer, even with these breakout like indie hits, you still had to 
hold down a part-time job while you were doing that? Or like, what were you, were you barely making it or? So here's the thing. I mean, I really think I was not a full-time game designer. I think I was a full-time games professional because basically I was, I was doing like, you know, behind the scenes admin work for a bunch of different publishers. I worked for Pelgrane Press for a while. Um, I worked for, I worked for Bully Pulpit Games. I was actually there like marketing and admin for a while. And then um, they started talking about, because uh, it, Bully Pulpit Games is, um, at the time was, they have a bigger team now, but at the time was just Jason Morningstar, who was like making, designing games. And then Steve Segetti, who is also very smart game designer, but most of the time is doing the business kind of side. And then they hired me on and then they started talking like, you know, we would love to like publish someone's game who like isn't Jason and maybe do something really different and we'd love to like whatever. I went through like two or three of these meetings before eventually going, oh, I'm working on a game. Do you guys want it? And then in fact, they did want it. So yeah. <laughs> so I was like a games professional and like was doing okay. work part time in the industry before I ever thought of myself as a designer. So then after that, I was like, okay, I'm doing design. I'm like writing for other people's games. I'm doing, I'm, you know, I was still doing, um, I can't remember, project management or production coordination. I think production coordination um, was what we called it, but basically like miscellaneous mm -hmm. stuff for Bully Pulpit. Um, and like, yeah, just like writing for this person, consulting for that person, teaching this over here, designing this over there contributing to somebody else's game, working on my own games. Like it was always just kind of a mishmash of different games related stuff. And no, I never made very much money at all uh, doing it. Um, but, uh, but I, don't know. I made a life for myself. It was very fun and very valuable while I was doing it. And I'm also very happy right now with games being a very much a side thing that is not my main. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that you are working in games in order to get your game published because I hear that from so many people. And I was just on the uh, podcast with uh, Brian Cortijo, who was uh, a contributor for uh, Dragon Magazine back in the day and like all these different uh, Paizo publications, Adventure Paths, and they work on, uh, on Skag for Wizards. And then they just worked on... Uh, the Dragonlance adventure for Wizards. And they were, they have been a part-time contributor their entire time, 20 years in the industry, part-time, because like the the economics just isn't there generally to support uh, game designers, to, to make enough money to support themselves. And of course, if you live in a city, then uh, your cost of living is so high that you're generally going to need to sort of get a normal job anyway. And I wonder how you think that changes your perspective of what's important to make. Oh, well, for one thing, I, I always want to point out that like almost every creative field, right? Like this is the majority of the, of creative fields that exist. Most people who are painting watercolors are not making a living doing it. And in fact, they're not even selling it. They're just making a nice little watercolor. Um, the majority of people who are doing stand-up comedy are not doing it for a living or are making music or whatever. I like when I first got into games, I, it was just very common and very expected for people to just like put together a game and then like run it for their friends, maybe toss a PDF up somewhere. Um, you know, this was like 10 years ago and, um, not, not quite that long, but, but yeah, to just like maybe, maybe put a PDF if other people want to play, that's cool too. Or it's a Google doc and everyone can just, you can have it if you want. Um, you know, itch, itch.io didn't exist. Drive through RPG existed, but the majority of, I feel like a lot of games, perhaps the majority of games that I was playing when I first, um, got into stuff was just like, Hey, let's like put this together and play it. Okay, cool. Moving on to the next thing. So I always want to make sure that like, this is, this is every creative field. And also that like, I was able to make a few games, really two, I think, that were like viable products that could be, you know, wholesale sold and sold in stores and whatever. But that's not necessarily what I'm like most proud of or what is going to give me satisfaction. Like when I look back on my life, on my deathbed, say, I'm not going to be like, oh, it's so good that I sold this number of units of this thing that I made. Like, like truly, right? This number of units. <laughs> right? Like, thank God. sold one million units. <laughs> right? Like, like, thank God I have, I had lots of SKUs in my catalog. Uh, that's like my last words because I'm dying. No, right? I'm going to be thinking for about somebody. like. That's got to be. <laughs> like, 
you know, I'm going to think about experiences and like what I did and, and, and the satisfaction of making something and of connecting to other people. Like when I am in a room with people and they're playing Starcrossed and I get to see them all giggle and blush and, and squirm in their seats and have fun and laugh and smile at each other. Like that's what I'm living for. I, again, like it's, it's funny to say this because I have had two relatively successful games. The successful part of that is not the cool part. It's not the fun part. You know, like the, 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 rel- you know, the fact that they're, they sold, sell relatively well. And of course, what constituted like a, a, a hit and a relatively profitable game five years ago is, a, you know, totally different metrics now. But, but yeah, so I did that. But like, one of the reasons why I am very, very happy to not be a full-time games person anymore is because I don't have to be creating with profitability, marketability in mind at all. That is so freeing. That is so nice because whether or not you want to acknowledge it, thinking about if if you are if you are making something to be sold, it changes the way that you make it. It just does. It just is. And that maybe it's not for the worse. You know, whatever. I like lots of commercial art. Um but it changes it. And so when you are just thinking about something that you just want to make, whether it's writing or painting or, or or anything, right, or a game, when you're just making it to make it, it's a different experience. And I feel, I am very, very lucky that I can make when I feel like it. And like, without too much pressure, I feel certain kinds of pressure, but, but like, without the pressure of like, is this going to pay my rent or whatever, because that can kind of suck the fun out of any creative endeavor. And this is true of musicians, artists, like like visual artists, you know, all kinds of folks is that like, on the one hand, there is this dream of being able to just make art and not have to do some other stuff. But then also when you get that, right, when you achieve that dream, suddenly this process of making art is not what it used to be. And this is why we need universal basic income. Of rant. <laughs> Very well. The definitive word. <laughs> if you don't know what universal basic income is, you can Google it. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about uh, For the Queen a little sure. bit. You mean the game that's even kinkier than Starcrossed, which is a game oh, about two yes. people in a slightly unequal power relationship experiencing forbidden feelings? Yes. Yeah, why is it always sex with the Queen? You know what I mean? Why can't the Queen I- just... And I didn't even put that in there. I didn't even I didn't even do that. I actually had a couple of in an early draft because this was a game that like I carried around with me as a set of handwritten note cards. Like I never ever thought of getting it published. I was like, this is fun for me and my friends, which again was also true with Starcrossed. I, you know, I, I worked with Bully Pulpit because Steve was like, hey, come work with us. And I was like, this is fun. I like I like this. Never Never did not do that with the intention of ever having a game designed at all or, or published. I mean, at all. And I wrote for the Queen kind of in a couple of days, and then and then play tested it, and then rewrote it, and it didn't change very much after that. Um, when Starcrossed was still almost like just being finished, like not quite published yet, because I needed to like distract myself from the final stages of a creative project, which are always frustrating. So I made for the Queen, and I just like played it with some friends, and then eventually uh, someone from Evil Hat was like. This is uh, very good, actually. Can we make and sell it? And I was like, oh, okay, sure. Um, <laughs> but uh, You just happened into an evil hat an uh, executive or something like yeah, yeah. executive but Direct, like one of them at... of special projects i think okay uh, it was a bigger <laughs> company at the time um yeah anyway um so yeah so i just had this game and um there were a couple of questions sorry if anyone listening doesn't know for the queen is a game is a prompt based game so it's just a deck of cards with questions in it you answer those questions in character and uh and all of the questions resol- revolve around a queen who no one plays she's, an, she's a non-player character and uh you develop a very complicated relationship with the queen um and at the end of the game you there's a final question that everyone has to answer that says uh the queen is under attack do you defend her and everyone has to answer that and people are often surprised by their own answers so it's just a game about messy complicated relationships with a very extreme power dynamic so there were in the original draft some questions that were like the queen invited you to her bedchamber or something something or like the queen like there were just a few i think there was one about like the queen had you flogged or something like that there were a few that were just like a tiny bit more explicit and evil hat was like we can't with this actually because we can't be selling like an 18 plus game is just not it's not going to work people you know distributors aren't going to buy it and whatever and then at the time i was so i was like how dare you my artistic oh. vision <laughs> um, my vision <laughs> exactly 
But uh, I thankfully relented and was like, that is fine and makes sense. And we rewrote or removed those cards to be a little bit more vague. And it is such a massive improvement because people have told me about playing this game with their kids and their kids have fun. You know, they're like eight and 10 year old kids are enjoying it because kids know all about messed up power dynamics. They have to do what grownups say all day long and they've got their own feelings about it, often of like rage, which is very fun. They have teachers, they know. And they're interpreting it in their own way because the cards are very vague. There's nothing there's nothing that has to be sexual about anything uh, you know, or even romantic or whatever that, that goes into the game. Um, but again, because they're vague and interpretive and people are projecting a lot onto a very short sentence, it means that if people want to take it in that direction, it's a pretty robust safety mechanic as well. Um, if people want to go there, people really go there. And people are really like, I don't know. I feel like the term bottoming out already has a meaning. So I don't <laughs> want to use that. But when people are just like, when people are just like, I'm so devoted to the queen and she's so bad to me and I still will protect her from anything. Like people just love that and are clearly getting something from that. And then when the next player comes in and is like, I defy the queen, she's been treating me like crap and I will never defend her. And in fact, I'm the one who twists the knife. People are also getting something from that as well, which I love and respect. Um, I forget what your question was, but this is what I'm talking about now. Yeah, that's, damn. This is <laughs> such a roller coaster of a podcast, Alex. Like, this is so yeah. fun. This is a good time. Wow. I, you know, what is... Alex Roberts working on next for 2023. Let's talk about that. Let's let's discuss that. What's what's in what are you reading? What are you doing? Like what are you experimenting with? What am I playing around with? Um I just played Firebrands for the first time and I had this feeling of like how have I never played this before? Um this is a game by Vincent and Meg Baker, powered by the Apocalypse, which some people think means one thing, but then Vincent and Meg Baker, the Apocalypse uh, world system um, are like no no it just means like structuring things in this way so it's a very beautiful Powered by, by the Apocalypse game that is all, basically a bunch of mini games and you have a lot of control over how long play lasts and what you're focusing on and what you're exploring. Um, it's GMless, so everyone's kind of just deciding like, I want to have a scene with you and you and you where we kind of do this. And then you pull out the mini game that that is relevant to that kind of interaction. Um, it's really cool. It's really fun. I'm very impressed by the, the elegance of the design. So now I'm like, do I want to make a firebrand? style game do i want to do something like this um but the fact is like for the past little while i have just been working on tiny little game de game design ideas sometimes finishing them sometimes if they're finished publishing them i made a game about santa claus uh, I made, yeah, I made a game about Christmas last year, which is a holiday I don't celebrate, but obviously had some feelings about to get out. Um, you can go play uh, To All a Good Night on my itch, I think. And uh, yeah, so I'm like kind of playing around with a bunch of different things, but I'm not really committed to a project right now. I have a halfway, maybe more like 75% done follow-up to For the Queen, which is about an inanimate tungsten cube um, called For the Cube. And uh, it's a bit grim. It's very sad. It's about suffering and regret. But uh, I don't know. Just haven't taken that over the finish line yet. What and, the sorry, hell, Alex? Questions. Do you have questions what? about the cube? Yeah, a lot of questions about the, my cube already answered what? by my cube. What the <laughs> hell? You can't just like drop like that little tidbit and then not fucking explain. <laughs> Tell me about your cube now. Okay. So the cube game working title for the cube um it, it's been play tested very successfully a couple of times it's a game where you um have where you are the people who are delivering a tungsten cube which is a real thing that horrid people buy um because it's just incredibly dense and expensive and useless as sort of a status symbol uh so anyway you are the people who are responsible for moving this tungsten cube which is like half a meter by half a meter and it weighs like hundreds of kilograms um <laughs> and yeah oh, this is a real thing oh okay okay and moving this was inspired by a friend of mine i don't think i can i don't think i can say details but a friend of mine uh her husband works at like a place where they manufacture these cubes and it's just like a machine shop you know the guy oh, is just God. he's he's just trying to make stuff, make some money, put food on the table for his family. And now all of a sudden he's being asked to manufacture these pointless, stupid cubes. Oh my God, your face right now as I watch you Google this. It's $4,000 $4, for a four inch 
tungsten cube. And the price What? is only going up because they just keep removing tungsten from the market by putting it in these horrible little cubes and not to any purpose whatsoever. There's a tungsten D20? <laughs> oh, foul. Foul. Oh, oh, no. I curse whoever possesses that 20. I wish them to roll nothing but ones on their own foot. Sorry, I don't actually want any harm to come to you. But Go please on. see the error of your ways. Um, yeah, so these horrible little cubes that are just so loathsome. A loathsome cube is what it is. So you play the people who are just... Your job is you deliver the cube from the factory to its owner. This is a very expensive cube that needs to be handled very in a very particular way. So you need to be like on it and um, keep it from getting stolen and whatever. Again, it has the same structure as for the queen where you're just being asked questions about the journey and about the cube. Sometimes it gets a little supernatural. Usually it just gets very political um, and kind of existential and uh, is really about like, why are you doing the things that you are doing? How much evil are you willing to participate in in order to like get your needs? met um even if you were to abandon the cube could you ever escape the system that created it um yeah it's oh kind god. of dire and oh my god therefore very funny people tend to say very devastating things during this game and then oh. laugh wow like you're fucking like this is a this is a whole emotional journey just of me imagining this game being played i have to play this game i have yeah. to play this game alex thank you for motivating me it's It's almost done. It's basically done. I just need to kind of, I don't know, do something with it. Maybe I have, you have to finish this game. I have to play it. Okay. 2023, the cube is on. The cube is coming <laughs> to your neighborhood. The cube is coming to your table. And if you don't put it down very gently, it will crash through it and destroy it. Yeah. I, it's bonkers. I, you know, I expected to be like impressed, Alex, but like I'm, really fucking impressed just chatting just talking with you i'm Thank super you. impressed with you i really loved talking to you and um unfortunately oh. i have family obligations i have to pick up my child but and another meeting in in the interim but anyway it, you don't care about my schedule i should eventually do work today as well yeah <laughs> <laughs> i thank you so much for coming on the podcast alex thank um you for having me This has been a wonderful, great thing. I have all of Alex's links in the description if you want to check Alex's stuff out. Uh, if you want to play these sexy games, I mean, if you're honestly like, hey, give it a shot. Like you're on Tinder, you're lonely. Just ask people to play these games with you. Let's do it. It's a great date game. Uh, yeah. It's I've heard I've heard what I will call success stories from other people. I'll let you interpret that however you want. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they're fun date games. And then if you have a really massive uh, collection of people who want to explore these themes together, you can play my 12 person LARP about balloon fetishists. That's the that's the unresolved thread that I'm going to just uh, drop at the end of this episode. What? And you can just live wondering. Where is it? I'll send you All right. Is it on your website? Is it somewhere on there? Probably. It's Did in I a collection. It? It's in an anthology called Honey and Hot Wax, oh, okay. um, which is like a collection of erotic art games. I don't oh, know my that gosh. my balloon game is necessarily erotic, but I think it is interesting and uh, mm -hmm. worth playing. All right. Play Alex's games and uh, go get fucked. <laughs> and I'm going to hit the stop Advice button. you can use. <laughs> oh, my God. That was so fun. I wish we could keep talking. Thanks so much for listening to the Dollars and Dragons podcast. If you'd like to support me and, more importantly, my editor who does all of the heavy lifting here, then you can subscribe to patreon.com slash it's Friday. And that is going to go straight to my editor. Appreciate it. Thank you so much.